Yeah? No? Anybody see Dwayne today? Yeah. <laughs> I know a lot of us remember Dwayne from Oasis. Um, <laughs> I'm here. That's what counts. And I just, I'm back in Ohio. I just know that someone needs to hear this today when I saw Dwayne. Um, when I first started attending Oasis, and it was sort of demonstrative, and I wasn't used to that, used to that type of uh, um, service, I was very judgmental. I stood there like this, I looked at people, and I thought, they're doing that for a show. And good old Louie, one Sunday, he gave a message about worship. And the bottom line of his message was, it's nobody's business how I worship, how you worship, worship. It's nobody's business but yours and God. And he, you know how Louie was, how he talked about freedom and, and, you know, and letting the Lord fill your spirit, which I knew I was the only person in that room that day that that message was for, in my mind because of my old judgmental self. And so I thought, well, okay, let's give it a whirl. And the truth is, it does open up. It opens up that communication. You don't have to do it. You can do it however you want to, but you have to be open to it. I opened myself up to that. My relationship is so much deeper. And right now I'm doing a job in Arizona where um, it's on a reservation. I don't think there's one church in town. So I miss that. But our grandchildren have been brought up in the church. We now have a 13-year-old grandson. And I know some of you have seen this on Facebook, but every week he does a message. And that kid is on fire. Because he's filled with the Spirit. He shared his message last week. I read it, and he fired me up again. My 13-year-old grandson fired me up again with my faith. And I shared it with people at work. And I had one girl that went into our little med room, and she was in there for quite a while. She came out, and she's crying. She said, and she, she's got just a very spiritual background. She said, I, threw like, felt, I felt like throwing my hands up in the air when I heard that. So... I'm really praying that um, the message that Louis shared about opening up to worship and letting the Spirit fill you, however that needs to be, I feel from that moment on, my husband and I, our grandkids, parents, have sort of led by example, so don't be afraid. And everything we said today about being bold and having freedom, that's what we need to do. I mean, this, this whole week, was based on bold and freedom. Then when I saw this guy today, because he was one that I thought, that guy's an idiot. Look at him. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty calm today for those of you that don't know him, but it used to be up and down. And I'm sure he's going to get there again when he's comfortable, but it's none of our business how he wants to worship or how you want to worship, how I want to worship. Nobody's business. Thank you. Thank you. Is everybody good? We want to just run and go for lunch.
Somebody, Nick, can you fetch the lights over there, please? Good morning, everybody. Welcome, as you've, if you're visiting with us, this is our family room, and uh, we usually apologize after we call some, we do call some people idiots sometimes, but we usually apologize, but <laughs> no, sometimes that's afterwards. Oh, good to see everybody. Welcome to our family room. Before I get started, I want to thank Tom uh, for the job he did last week, the message that he brought. It was, so, it was just full of reminders. It was not, and I told him this morning, I said, more of our faith walk is little reminders than it is huge revelations. There are times and there's moments where we get big revelations, but so much of our daily grind of walking by faith is we need the little reminder. We need the little reminder here and the little reminder there, and it was full of them last week. So thank you, Tom, for sharing. Spoke on prayer and the armor of God, which is truly, as I was listening to it, I was thinking about the armor of God in its simplest form. People have taught and expounded on the armor of God, deep, deep things, and come up with all kinds of cues and things to help us remember this and that. And uh, at its simplest form, it is a daily acknowledgement of the gospel. That's where all protection lies. That's the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. All, every part of the armor is a daily acknowledgement. It's not like we can fashion things and we can make reminders and that's fine, but primarily the armor, the thing that protects us is a daily acknowledgement of the gospel. The magnitude of God's goodness poured out in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross to make us right, give us the opportunity to be right with God, followed up by sending the Holy Spirit to fill us, to teach us, to comfort us, to guide us. It's a simple thing, and I've, I've shared, this has been like a focus for in my life this last week, is there are many things in life and in faith that are simple, and yet they're very, very difficult. Simple does not always beget easy. In fact, oftentimes the simplest things are the hardest things, right? I mean, that makes sense. It's not necessarily that it's easy, but it is very simple. This entire scripture from cover to cover is an example and a demonstration, a foreshadowing, a telling of the new covenant and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the whole thing, cover to cover, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a, it is truly a love story of God with his creation. So anyways, thank you very much, Tom, for that. Two weeks ago, we started talking about faith and patience. How about it for the patience crowd? Everybody ready for, no one leave. It's not all about patience this morning. I hear you. I hear you. Uh, we talked about Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. It talks about uh, an encouragement that we do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. That patience thing is difficult for us, but it is built right into faith. If you want to walk by faith, there's a passage of time. It's not instant. It's, there's a built-in passage of time. And the part that we're going to kind of draw on a little bit and we're going to look through, this will be a little bit of a different message because there's two points and while they're from the same text, we're going to draw on them from the same text, the points, if I were to just give you the points right now, you would say, the same Sunday you're going to do those two? Like, how are they related other than you can find them both in Scripture? But we're going to look at studying the Word of God, a way that this is just kind of a, a practical principle, and I'm not, this isn't a Bible study class, 
So it's not like there's no homework for this or whatever. I just kind of want to walk you through one of the ways that, like the way I study scripture, some of the things that I see. One of the things we referenced last week is uh, how as humans, we have a tendency to wander when we're waiting. It's just built in. I mean, you can see it. You, I mean, we were talking to some friends, I don't remember, a night this week, I can't remember what night it was, and they were talking about how the, the wife went shopping, the well, husband and wife went shopping together, and the husband was not really feeling it. And so what is the, he's like, he's done. I mean, we just got to the store, but he's just done, and he starts to wander. How long are we gonna be here? Is there a, be- like, I'll go find a bench, and now with the advent of smartphones, we can wander, we can look to our heart's content, we can keep ourselves occupied, but when we're subject to waiting, as humans, we tend to wander. And so there's all kinds of encouragement all throughout Scripture. Paul gives us a bunch. Peter gives us some. John writes about it. James gives us instruction of basically, if you want the honest, what to do while you're waiting. Don't wander. Hold the line. The title that I started with for this message was Hold the Line. We'll see how it ends up when we get through it, Jody. Don't just, you maybe write that down. Don't title it that yet. But it's the idea of all through Scripture, it's hold the line. Keep believing. Because we know, we talked about this in depth a couple weeks ago, that once you've received a thing in its entirety, there is no more need for belief because it is now sight. Believing is not seeing. Believing is believing, and seeing is seeing. They're not the same thing. They may be related. Believing is usually the precursor, but then once you see it, you don't need to say, man, I got faith that I'm going to be standing here this morning anymore. I don't need that anymore. It sounds ridiculous. So there's this built-in principle of patience, and yet Patience is almost, if not, the least natural thing for humans to walk in. Amen? It's not our, like, there are people who are patient, but usually if you dig deep, there's been life circumstances that have taught them patience. The Holy Spirit has led them into it. I don't know anybody who was just born and they're just, I'm just a patient person. I've had, we're on our third baby He's uh, 14 months old now, and I ain't been a one of them come out of the womb patient or considerate of anyone around them. As humans, we come out of the womb, and we, and we kind of stay this way all through life. We just get better at kind of shielding it. But as humans, we tend to have the attention span of hummingbirds. It's like we're at a little flower for a while, and it's like, man, this is great. Well, what about that flower? What about, what about that flower? We just, we, that's our tendency. This morning, as we open our Bibles, we're going to look at a clear example of how quickly we wander when we're waiting or when we're, we find ourselves in a holding pattern. Anybody ever been in a holding pattern? Can I get a thank you, Jesus? Yeah, uh, holding patterns aren't always our favorite place to be, but there's a lot of life happens in them. If we're going to be honest, there's a, there's a lot of our life happens in holding patterns, made up by moments of when we see things here and we see things there, but there's holding patterns that make up a, a big chunk of our lives. And we tend, we're going to look at an example in Scripture, a very long example. We'll see if we make it through today. I kind of surrendered when I walked in this morning. Um, I was going through this, and I had... I had a tremendous amount of scripture in my notes for this. And I'm like, Lord, I'm not sure about reading all this. I, like, I want to read it. I want to be able to prepare it. And so I've kind of, but I, then when I got here this morning, I surrendered. I'm like, I don't know if we'll make it through the whole thing. But is everybody good? If we don't make it clear through, we'll finish it up next week. Throughout scripture, we see examples of humanity 
that seems, they seem incapable of waiting and holding that line. Now, you guys know what I mean by holding the line. You understand what I'm saying? Like, believing something, and then when everything flies in the face of it, which is how life oftentimes happens, whatever we believe, choosing to believe it, no matter what we see, no matter how it pans out, holding that line. That's what I mean when I'm talking about holding a line. I'm like, it doesn't matter what direction the attacks or the, it's, I make scripture the Lord of my life, and I believe that what I see in scripture is going to be true, regardless of what I see around me. That's a, this principle of holding that line. It's choosing to believe it. Throughout scripture, though, we see examples of humanity who are in, just incapable of that, it seems. But I want to, I want to, there's an encouragement in this. We are not the first generation of humans who suffer from instant gratification disorder. We do suffer from it, and our generation has maybe an amplified view of it, but I just, I made it a disorder. There's thousands of disorders. We can make new ones every day. And I thought, this is really a disorder in our culture today. This is instant gratification. And we see it, it stayed in the fast food chain for a while. Like, I mean, you go back when McDonald's was getting started and all these restaurants were getting started, it was like, that's the only place that instant gratification was. Because at that point in time, you still had to wait for your programming on TV, it was, anybody remember waiting for programming? I say that like I would remember we didn't have a TV. But I remember hearing about it. People like, we gotta wait, and we, our show's gonna get back on, we gotta wait for that. That was still going on then, so it was like it wasn't quite to entertainment. And then the telephone, you know, the advent of the telephone was, preceded that, and it's like, I cannot wait more than about four rings for either who I'm calling or whoever else shares the party line in that area to pick up the phone because I got to talk to them. Used to be you'd send a letter or you'd send someone with something. But over the last, I'll say 50 to 70 years, this instant gratification thing has went nuts. There's almost nothing that is not touched by it. We cannot, I mean, I'm, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say brand names, but I'm going to. Like a Keurig coffee, the instant, we cannot wait for a pot of coffee to brew. That can take up to three and a half minutes. I need that Keurig to be hot. I need it to be on. In fact, I would like one to program so that the moment my alarm goes off, there is a cup of coffee. Drip, 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 drip. So by the time I stumble to the kitchen, I have instant coffee. I mean, you think about it. This is just the way. It's everything. When we, you know, we used to be patient. When the internet first came, we were patient people. <laughs> We'll just wait, and then we would click a button, and we would carry on with our day for a little while while the page loaded or refreshed. Well, it's like, we'll just wait for it. Now, I cannot be bothered to wait 30 seconds for a page to load. I'll get upset. I'll begin composing an email or an irate phone call to my internet provider. This is wildly unacceptable. I pay a fraction of what they used to pay for internet, and it's way, 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 way faster than it was, but if it's not instant, I feel like I've been wronged. My rights have been infringed upon. It does not work instantly. This applies to, I mean, nearly, nearly every, you know, we can go to the gas station. Well, I, I can't, I'm not going to walk inside to pay. That's ridiculous. In fact, now, I don't even really want to stick my card in the thing. Is there a way that my phone, which is my better half, I can just hold it up to the thing and it just pays automatically. Just, I need it to be fast. Everything's got to be instant. So there's this amplification of this instant gratification 
disorder carrying on. And you know what? This has been as long as humans have been in existence. It's, there's this instant thing. It's like we can't wait for the Lord to tell us any more about this tree. We'll just eat and find out. Thank you, Eve. We'll just, like, we could wait. There's a real, we're walking with the Lord in the cool of the day every day. We could maybe ask him, what else can you tell us about the tree? Or eat it now and find out for all humanity. It's carried on all through scripture, this instant gratification. We can't wait. Waiting is not, I mean, how many times have you heard a child say, I can't wait for whatever. I can't wait for my show. I can't wait for my snack. I can't wait to go to school. I can't wait to be done with school. I can't wait to drive. I can't wait. We've encouraged, we've almost groomed this culture of can't wait into people. Learning to be patient I think is one of the most important things skills we'll ever learn in this life. Learning to be patient, to wait, and not to wander while waiting. In Exodus chapter 32, we see the Israelites, I mean, one of their biggest wanders, which is just like, it's a head smack, it's a what? And we're gonna look at kind of how this was a what. Start, we'll start in verse one of, of Exodus chapter 32. We're not gonna read all of this and we're not gonna, I don't know how far we're gonna get through the verses, but you guys remember the story. Does everybody here remember the story of the golden calf? Okay, so the Israelites had been delivered from Egypt. They're wandering around in the desert. They hadn't really got into the wander yet. They're still just, there's some direction to their walking yet at this point. They end up meeting with the Lord. And on Mount Sinai, Moses goes up and the Lord is there. At this particular point where we pick up, we'll just read this first. When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said unto him, come, make us gods, small g-o-d-s, that go before us. For as, the, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Aaron goes along with it here, break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. I'll oblige you. I'll fix us a God. So the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Verse four, he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, made a molded calf. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. It's like, this is going sideways, Aaron. Why don't we build an altar? So he built an altar for it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose early the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go, get down, for your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. This is the first of about a thousand side notes this morning. Does anyone appreciate the language in verse seven? And the Lord said to Moses, go get down. For whose people? Excuse me, excuse me, whose people? Your people. Moses, they're your people right now. They're not my people. They're your people. And they look like idiots. Now, Moses was on the mountain. We're gonna look at a little bit of this. We're not, again, I'm not even gonna rush through this. We're gonna be here for a little while, church. 
at the advent of the golden calf, you may think if you were to just do what a lot of times we do in Christianity, just reopen the Bible, hey, now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down the mountain, oh my gosh, he must have been there a long, long time. Anybody take a guess at how long Moses had been on the mountain? 40 days at that point. 40 days. Years. 40 days. Years it would be like, okay, we should probably come up with something to do. 40 days Moses had been on the mountain. This might seem like a while, okay? This, you might be like, you know, again, we can't wait 30 seconds for an internet page, so 40 days to wait for a leader seems like a lot. But there was no indication whatsoever that the Lord or Moses was through with leading the children of Israel. There was no evidence that the Lord was done on the mountain. There was no, there's nothing in Scripture that says, you know, the, the smoke and the fire and everything that was on the mountain had dissipated. Nobody, they had went up, sent a search party and looked. There was no evidence that the Lord was done with Moses or with the children of Israel. This 40 days is a drop in the bucket when compared with the amount of time that it took. Now, we're going to step back a little bit here. The amount of time that it took for these same people, the same people, it wasn't even the next generation, the same people to witness all the plagues to run their course in the land of Egypt. We don't know exactly how long that was. So bear with me. We don't know exactly. It, most, most historians and theologians speculate between four months, which is more than, significantly more than 40 days, and up to a year that the plagues took to run their course through Egypt. Now, that's a while. And in those plagues, there's very clear evidence in Scripture that the Lord had protected the children of Israel. In fact, if you remember the story, what was the purpose of the plagues? Was to provide an escape for the children of Israel. That's a big deal. That's a fairly long, long time. At the point when the Israelites made the golden calf, we're going to do a little walkthrough because like I said, it's important to understand they hadn't been waiting that long. But when we're forced to wait, any length of time can just... You know, any length of time can seem forever. Have you ever been, uh, I used to work with a guy, it was just two of us worked together, and we, we did, we crushed concrete, and there was a lot of times things would break, or we'd be waiting for parts here, there, whatever, we'd tear something apart, and one of us would often go to get the parts, or to get a tool, or whatever, and how many of you know, if you're the guy going to get the tool, or the parts, you're busy, you the whole time, it's like, I'll run and get the part. And so you scamper to wherever and you get in your pickup and you drive and you go get the parts. You come, you're busy the whole time. But you know, if you're the guy left there waiting for the parts, it's like, what is taking so long? What could he possibly be doing? Well, he's going to get his pickup and he's driving. He's going to, you know, every, anybody ever been, when you're the one waiting for someone to bring something back, I have this experience with my wife. Periodically, she does things where she'll like go with Friends, like they'll go for supper or she'll go to Bible study or something that, and she'll like, I'll be home at eight or I'll be home at nine. And boy, 9.03, I am like, is she ever coming home? <laughs> and she's a very punctual person. Now, when I'm out doing whatever I need to do, I have all the reasons why I'm not back. I was gonna be home at eight this morning, honey, but it's like 8.45 because of this and this and this. Very understandable. But if she's five, 10, and if it gets to a half an hour, I'm like, 
I'm going to call search and rescue. I have no idea where she is, but I have children that need their mother. When you're the one waiting, a little moment can just seem like forever. We're just waiting and waiting and waiting. Probably the most amplified example of this in my life so many of you are aware, my wife and I had an interesting dating career, and it was nearly a career. It took a long time. There was a lot of starting, a lot of stopping. We began dating, and then it didn't work out, and then we began dating again, and then it didn't work out, and then we got back. To, this was years ago. And there was a couple of those times where I was certain that this was going to work, but she was not talking to me. <laughs> and I had kind of put the ball in her court, like, I would love to talk to you, but I'll just wait. In those moments, none of them were very long. I make it sound, when I tell a story, I make it very dramatic. It really was a, a course of about a year and a half. It wasn't like on, you know, it was not that big of a deal. But a couple of those times where I was waiting, it was like, Lord, this waiting was a terrible idea. Could we just, maybe I should just move on. Just wait. Just wait. In scripture, we see this when, when Jesus was buried. So Jesus was crucified on Friday and he, didn't raise, he was not raised again until Sunday. Imagine those, those day and a half of waiting. Imagine being the disciples. It don't matter what Jesus told them at that point. The reality was he was buried. It wasn't even just that he died and we're like, we're watching his body waiting. He was done buried. They fixed everything. They put him in the tomb. They sealed the tomb. It was over. There was no hope. The hope was sealed in the tomb. This waiting thing is so difficult for us. As humans, it is so difficult. At the point where we picked up the story with the Israelites this morning, they had witnessed, and we're going to run through these in some measure of detail, but less than I thought originally this morning. They had witnessed 10 plagues. And you say, oh, yeah, they had witnessed the 10 plagues. A lot of times, I learned these plagues when I was a little kid in Sunday school. And so it can get to be, it's like, yeah, they had this one, and then they had this one, and they had this one. And I can't remember. There was like a lot of bugs involved. And, but it seems very flippant and quick. When you read these plagues, these are like end-of-the-world plagues. The first one, which Pharaoh aced, he had no interest in letting the uh, Israelites go. All the water turned to blood. This was, Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he's like, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, I ain't going to let you guys go. And he's like, There's, this is what's going to happen. This is what happens. All the water turns to blood. Moses is like, you sure you don't want to let us go? He's like, uh, I, and I can't remember in the first one, I, I've read so many of these, whether he repented, he said they could, and then they couldn't. But anyway, they didn't go. So the water turns to blood. Now you read that, it's like, oh, that'd be bad. No, all the water turned to blood. It was not just the Nile River. It was the Nile. All rivers, it says. It does specify the Nile, and then it says all of them. So all the tributaries, it wasn't like you're like, well, we'll go up here to this other stream, and we'll just get water up here. No, that one's blood too. Well, that's okay, because we have a pool out back. All the pools turned to blood. You know what? We have buckets of water in the wellhouse. Uh, all the water in buckets Turned to blood. That's okay. We got a pitcher of water in the fridge. We got one of those little, the ones with the filter on it and everything. Also, the pitchers all filled with blood. That's a big deal. The Israelites witnessed this. They didn't participate, but they saw it. 
This is massive. This is found in Exodus 7, if you want. This lasted, you think, well, that would have been a rough day. That would have been a rough seven days. This took seven days. How many of us could survive if every ounce of water that was around us turned to blood for seven days? They went digging, like, we're going to dig wells and see what else we can find to survive. Big deal. The second one, frogs. This one's kind of always struck me as interesting. Frogs. Like, the Lord says, I'm going to send a swarm of frogs. And I'm like, frogs are okay. Like, they're kind of interesting. No, swarms of frogs. So much so that by the time the plague was over, they piled them up and it says, all of Egypt stank. Stunk? Stank. I think it was stank, but I'm not sure. Exodus chapter 8 is where you find this. It was the frogs were in their beds, in their mixing bowls. Like, we think frogs, like we could see frogs hopping across the yard. They infested everything in your bedroom. Pull the sheets back, frogs. Boy, that would be a restful night's sleep. Wouldn't it? The next one, again, Pharaoh didn't relent. They're, they're not going. The third, the third plague, this is like, I feel like this should have been three plagues. Biting gnats, lice, and, if that wasn't bad enough, blood-sucking insects. And it says, in, also in Exodus chapter 8, it says, the very dust became lice and biting gnats in a moment. And immediately following came swarms of blood-sucking insects. We think great black swamp mosquitoes around here, this is bad. You know, we can't have a campfire without getting six or eight mosquito bites. This is not six or eight mosquito bites. The dust, which they did not have pavement and concrete, the dust became gnats, lice, and blood-sucking insects. Still, Pharaoh's not. In the, I want, I'm, we're walking through this because I want you to see all of these things, were, these are in quick succession, fairly quick succession, months, maybe a year at most, but it's boom, 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 boom. Blow after blow after blow after blow to the Egyptians while the Israelites are sitting in their recliners eating popcorn, turning the volume up like, oh my goodness, look at this one. This is all what they're witnessing and this is all the lead up to the golden calf instance. Okay, we're at one, two, three, four. Livestock all die. Now, the Bible says, this is something I want to kind of talk about a little bit because it says the livestock all die. There was obviously some livestock that survived because there's more livestock die later with another plague. And also, Pharaoh had enough horses somewhere that he was able to follow the Israelites with chariots eventually. We'll get to that point in the story. But at, at the very least, very large percentages, all the livestock that were in the field, everybody that was outside, everybody that was, they all just died. Horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. Seems like we just lost a lot of protein value for the children of Egypt. Again, children of Israel are sitting there like, make some more popcorn, this is terrible. They're still not letting them loose. Pharaoh's still like, I'm not going to let them go. I still won't let them go. Next, boils on every living thing. And I added, that survived the previous plagues. At this point, like we'll stick a pin in this story right now. We got the water turned to blood. We got the frogs, the biting gnats, the lice, blood-sucking insects. Livestock, large amount of livestock die. Boils on every living thing that had survived the previous plagues. Now, 
The thing that I think of when I read this story about these plagues that the Lord brought upon Egypt to convince Pharaoh to let the children of Israel go, I see an example of what we refer to today as total war. So there was a period of human history where we tried to dignify war, where they tried to make it like it's only gonna be between the warriors and the, the elites, and the, you'll get these like three or four people, and they'll, they'll just do battle for the countries and everything. And then, and there's been a lot of human history that it wasn't that way, but then about the Civil War era, uh, General William Tecumseh Sherman, was, they were done. The Union was done with this war. And, they, and Abraham Lincoln gave the green light through Ulysses S. Grant to say, we're going to bring total war. We want to break the back of the Confederacy to, to end this thing. And William Sherman brought back what's called, what they began to refer to as total war, where there was nothing left untouched. So the object of the attack was everything. It wasn't, we're gonna walk through the towns and we're just looking for the other army. It was, we get to the town, smoke it. We get to the farm, we burn it down. We get to, because the, the idea was we're trying to bring the enemy to the brink, to their knees, to a breaking point. That's what I see in this. Sorry, this microphone keeps getting caught in my beard. This is, the, like, the Lord was determined to deliver the children of Israel. And he had, he had, Moses went to Pharaoh and he's like, let my people go. He gave them, like, will you just let my people go? That was an out. Let them go. You still got Egypt. Pharaoh's like, basically, over my dead body, which is how it ends. But at that point, the Lord declares all out war. It's total war. There's nothing untouched. We've got boils on every living thing that survived the previous plagues. The next plague, hail and lightning. And it says, very clear in scripture, such as Egypt had never seen since its founding. Pounded and pounded, killed and destroyed more of the land of Egypt. So whatever livestock survived up to this point, it says anything that's out in the field, any servants, any people, any workers, any Animals, anything that's out in the field that's not covered by a roof, and it clearly says in Scripture, will die. And the hail comes, and it says, like, the picture is fireballs. It's not just lightning like, oh, that was a pretty lightning show. It's like, it describes fireballs like, that come down and run across the ground. It's just a storm of epic proportion. Destroyed more of the land of Egypt. We get to the locusts, swarms of locusts, so that you could not see the ground, came and devoured every remaining bit, is what it says, every remaining bit of vegetation in the land of Egypt. In fact, I'll turn back to it here, Exodus chapter 10, verse seven. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long shall this man, referring to Moses, be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. And this is what got me in this verse. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? Don't you get it? There's nothing left of us. At this point in all of these plagues, these were national plagues that did not affect the land of Goshen, which is where the Israelites lived, but absolutely destroyed Egypt. To the point that even his advisors are like, 
What don't you understand? We're going to lose. We have nothing left at this point. What are you even fighting for? I love the way it's worded. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? Followed up, plague number nine, darkness. A darkness so awful that it may be felt for three days. No sun, no moon, no stars. Utter darkness. See, when the Lord put pressure on Egypt, he wasn't messing around. Utter darkness, pitch black. Now, at the time, I'm not into, I don't know what they understood of galaxies and our, our whole uh, solar system, what was understood by the Egyptians. For us today, like to stop and think about what all had to take place for utter darkness for three days. Like the magnitude of our God, he would not, there was no punch he would not pull for these guys. I love the, I love the Israelites so much, I will pause. The only Being in all of existence who has access to the pause button on the solar system. Imagine that. He's like, watch, pause, darkness. Now you can think for three days. You don't know. Now, you know, they probably, we don't have any evidence that they had any sort of clocks. You lose all, you know, if you are in the pitch black, you can lose all realm of your spatial relations, lose all passage of time. I don't know what day it is. You know, they, the, the idea of this darkness is that everyone, no matter how close they were, was basically in solitary confinement. They had no, you could talk, but it would have been terrifying to know. We don't know where anything is. We don't know where anyone is. Utter darkness. In fact, all of the things that you use to tell the passage of time, it's like whiteout or blackout over all of them. We can't see any of them. We have no idea. Is it day? Is it night? We don't know. Utter darkness. It says darkness that could be felt, so awful that it may be felt. And still, Pharaoh would not relent. So the last plague. In Exodus chapter 11 through 12, we see the Lord instruct the Israelites to basically gather all the personal wealth of the Egyptians a portion of which will later be used in the fashioning of the tabernacle. And by our reading this morning, also some of it got donated to a calf. But the last plague following this. So you think about that. We gloss over that a lot of times. And I'm I'm running out of time here. We are going to bring this to a close for today, but I I invite you to come back because there's a whole bunch more. We haven't even got to the point of this. But imagine... In Exodus 11 and 12, we see that the Lord instructs the Israelites. He told Moses he was going to do this. He said, you got, basically, I'm going to soften these guys up. And then I'm going to send the Israelites out, and you go gather all their personal wealth. And if you read it in this, if you read the chapters that talk about this, you don't see the Israelites putting up, any, or the Egyptians putting up any fight. They're just handing their earrings. Empty. It's like, here's the safe. I'll open the door for you. Why do you, like, we read over that, and it's like, yeah, so they got all their gold, and then, then the, the plague of the death of the firstborn came, and then they were off like a shot from a gun, and they took off to the Red Sea. Yes, but let's back up and pause. Why do you think the Egyptians were so free with their stuff? Because at this point, they had no hope. 
There's no need for money. There's no need for jewels. We are done. We are finished. None of this has any value. There's nothing to buy with it. Our country, our society, everything that we know is over. They had been, in essence, pounded into submission by the stubbornness of Pharaoh. Thing after thing after thing. What's the point? There's nothing to buy. We have no use for this. Our country, our way of life has been utterly decimated. Take it. What do we care? You guys are sitting over there in Goshen. Nothing's happening to you. This is clearly a fight we can't win. There is no hope. All hope was lost for the Egyptian nation at this point. Obviously, the arrogance of the Pharaoh continued because we got one more round coming. But at this moment, the nation, the people, the, regular, the people that did all the stuff that probably at the onset of it were pretty big and bad, like you're our slaves. At this point, it's like, yeah, fine, take it. They had lost so much as a nation. They had nothing left. They had very little, if any, livestock. They had no crops. They had no food. Remember, locusts, they didn't have refrigerators All their food was gone. They had no hope. This nation had been decimated by the Lord God of Israel. The Lord God had pounded and pounded and pounded for the purpose of delivering the Israelites. And the last, we see the death of the firstborn of all of Egypt. Every firstborn in all of Egypt, men and animals alike, any animal that was firstborn that was left, which is probably few and far between by this point, They died this night. Only the houses of the Hebrews who had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their homes were spared. This is the birth of the Passover feast and the feast of unleavened bread. And this was the final straw. The Israelites leave Egypt. The Lord leads them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. We're gonna pick back up here next week. I, I want to bring this a little bit to a close if you guys will give me a few more minutes. All of these events, and there's more we're going to look at next week in depth. All of these events were in direct succession and all led up to the golden calf incident. They needed to wait for a mere 40 days for Moses to come down. But that was just too much waiting. And so they wandered. Ultimately, the Israelites' seeming inability to remember God's faithfulness cost them a lot more than waiting for 40 days, didn't it? They wind up 40 years of extra waiting and wandering, and in fact, every member of this generation, save two, died in the wilderness. Now, what is this for us today? There's a, there's a couple things we're going to look at in the coming week or weeks, possibly. But we can draw from this a need to maintain a clear focus on the faithfulness of God. To remind ourselves often of the magnitude of this new covenant. You see, they just forgot. They didn't forget. If you'd ask them, they could have told you. I say they just forgot. That's giving them a pass. What do you mean they forgot? I mean, it faded. The intensity was gone. They couldn't smell it anymore. You say, what do you mean smell it? No, it's not in scripture, except in each of those plagues, there's several references to the stench. And once you get away from the smell, it's, I can't remember, I mean, yeah, 
But in the moment, we're just here. And that 40 days felt like an eternity. Anybody ever been in those 40 days where if you're really honest with yourself and we look back at the faithfulness of God in our lives, he's been amazing. Faithfulness of God beyond anything we could think or imagine. But for the last 40 days, I'm not real sure what's going on. And so we're willing to jeopardize, not that any of you are building golden calves. I just want to, there's an encouragement in this that we can say, Paul, you know, Paul continued this to the letter of the church at Galatia in his letters to Timothy, the letter to the church, the Hebrew church. There's this encouragement. In fact, Galatians 1, 6 says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you to the grace of Christ to a different gospel. You're walking away so quickly. How quickly we forget the faithfulness of God. How quickly this new covenant, and ultimately, church, this is what we're looking at is there is a type and a shadow in this Egyptian story of when the Lord delivers you from something, there's nothing left of what he delivered you from. When the Lord is done with sin and death, <coughs> and Tom talked about this last week, it says Jesus made a show of them openly. There's nothing left of them. The powers of darkness, the powers of evil have been utterly decimated. That's the, there's a picture and a type and a shadow. We're gonna dig into this a little bit deeper next week. Tom, you guys wanna come forward. We're gonna, we're gonna close with a song. I just wanna encourage us I want to encourage each of us, myself included, to remember the faithfulness of God. There's a couple folks here from our uh, Bible study men's group that's, we come and we go, we're growing and we're learning, and we spent some time recording God's faithfulness, taking a time to write it down. And it's so amazing that even in those moments, in the moment where we see God's faithfulness, where we've experienced something m- massive, it's easy, to, it's easy to think we'll never forget this. Like the moment you got born again, you believed in Jesus. I will never forget that moment. And yet, daily, I'm like, Lord, I'm not sure if I understand this. In the moment, I was nine years old. I didn't need to understand it. I just needed to know. I needed to believe in Jesus. And once that was settled, I slept like a baby that night. Not like my babies. Like the, what, they, babies sleep all night is what I slept like. Yet that fades and we get, back to, we get back to the worries and the concerns and we look at the world and we're like, I don't know, like I'm not sure. That's faith, we believe, we choose to believe in this new covenant to put our faith in Jesus. The magnitude of this new covenant, church, makes everything in this life fade to where it belongs. Unable to knock us off. There's so much in here that I'm trying to I'm trying to close and get to it. It's been my prayer through this that we've been able to see this morning we've kind of only looked at one facet of this. That the Israelites experienced God's faithfulness in delivering them out of the land of Egypt and then they forgot. It faded. So I encourage you, I invite, I invite you this morning while we're singing to think about the faithfulness of God. I'm not talking about the faithfulness of God that but now you have things that you didn't have before. I'm talking about the faithfulness of God to send Jesus as a sacrifice for something you couldn't pay so that we could believe and receive this free gift of salvation. 
We're going to look next week at the layers in this story. There's layers in Scripture. There's only one interpretation, but many, many applications. If you would join me and stand this morning, I'd like to dismiss us with a declaration. This gospel of Jesus Christ, the salvation that we have received by grace through faith, is complete. It's perfect. And it's greater than any natural opposition or spiritual opposition or circumstances we may find ourselves in. Difficulties may come and go and the gospel remains. Good times, they may come and they may go. This magnificent good news of Jesus Christ remains. As we step into our week, we choose to believe the word of God more than anything, more than any fear, more than any desire, more than any attack, and more than any victory. We declare the gospel with boldness and choose to hold the line and stay focused. If we're in a holding pattern, we choose to hold the line. If we feel like we're getting near the end of our holding pattern, we hold the line. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are always and only good.